Before we get going into your Hockey IQ podcast episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Rapid Shot. Rapid Shot is the smart shooting lane. Uh, it's like a batting cage for hockey players. Very cool. Tracks your shot in three ways. Accuracy, shot speed, and reaction time. Uh, easy to use. Uh, actually, I used it when I played and was growing up. Very easy. Simply scan your phone in, select your settings, and start shooting. Uh, you can see your stats on the app and online. And you can check them out at rapidshot.com. Uh, great small business. I actually grew up with one of the owner's sons and have played with all the family members by now. Uh, just in local pickups here in Ohio. Very cool local business. Awesome product. I love it. I know quite a few NHLers have them in their homes. Uh, a lot of D1 programs have it at their rinks. So you have to check this out. Rapidshot.com. Check it out. Rapidshot, thank you so much for sponsoring our podcast. On the podcast today, we have Mitchell Brown. Uh, Mitch or Mitchell, he is one smart cookie. Uh, really enjoyed listening to him. Uh, I think he is an excellent hockey mind. And the crazy part is he didn't even play hockey. He's yet to play ice hockey. He's played some ball hockey growing up, and we'll, we'll get into that. But uh, I, what, what did you take away, Dan? Let's start there. Well, I'll just say this. Anytime we can have a conversation with someone and leave a uh, significantly smarter person is a win for, for us, for me. And this one definitely qualifies, took a lot out of this conversation with Mitch. He's just a really thoughtful guy and he's unbelievably um, well-versed, not just in prospects, but really across the spectrum in hockey. And like, like you said, Greg, he never even played organized hockey. He said he skated like 10 times or something like that, which blows my mind because, you know, I think sometimes we kind of have a blind spot because we're around the game so much. So I think that having his perspective is really valuable. I love uh, fresh eyes or new eyes when I, when I worked back at Alcoa at one point, uh, that was the big thing on safety. It was like the person with new eyes, they didn't have the old biases that everyone had been there forever. So really enjoyed that. I, I loved the idea behind transferable skills. Uh, I know you and I have talked about this a ton, uh, but I think he really broke it down is, is what do players need to do to continue to go up the ladder uh, and in their development and, and what's maybe working now, but isn't going to work later. So Really excited to share this with everyone. And without further ado, our conversation with Mitch Brown. Welcome to the podcast, Mitchell. How are we doing? Good. How are you guys doing? Great. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, super excited. Everyone I heard leading up to this is like, this guy is wicked smart. You got to have him on. So prepare to, have to you be on. disappointed. <laughs> Uh, I, don't, I don't know about that. You've got some great uh, visuals. Uh, I've been using the one you have on angling of if successful, go this way. If unsuccessful, go that way. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I, I really like that one, too. That's one of my finest. Oh, you're going to have to send me some more. I, I use it all the time. It's so good. It's just so, so clear for all the kids. Yeah, it's great. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, so uh, get it going here. Let's get a quick background for those that don't know you that well. So I've currently, I write for Elite Prospects uh, on our editorial EP Rinkside. I've previously written for The Athletic, so I've done some NHL stuff, some prospect stuff. Uh, one exceptionally exciting fact is that I've never played hockey in my life. I played ball hockey, uh, but I've never played ice hockey before. And so it's a pretty interesting perspective, I think, that I have because everything is learned by virtue of 
asking people an insane amount of questions rather than it just being intuitive from being coached from a young age. That is really interesting. Where did you grow up and how did you get into the sport? I grew up in the middle of Hockeyville, Ontario. Like I grew up right in the middle. Like everyone around me played hockey. All of my friends did, but it just didn't really interest me all that much. I think I was like 12 or 13. Uh, It's like I'm 24 now. So it was like 12-ish years ago at least when I first started following the sport. And then as is usually with me, it's not like, oh, this is kind of interesting. I'm going to watch it. No, I obsess over it and, you know, look at every detail and everything like that. And then it just eventually turned into a career path by virtue of annoying a lot of people, publishing a lot of articles and getting dunked on on the internet constantly. Join the club. I hear you. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in your path. I think it's really interesting really unique so do you think that you know by virtue of not growing up playing you already mentioned that you didn't really have these like preconceived notions because you didn't have any habits to break maybe that helped you in your hockey journey yeah absolutely I think like one of the big things is that as a writer your job is to explain things it's to give the reader something to chew on and a lot of times when you see people who are really good players, they're not able to explain exactly what they're doing or why they're thinking that way in a situation. I'm sure you might've noticed like elite players, for example, like in that Laz and Powers podcast, Patrick Kane is very explicitly stating why he does something. And that's something that separates, you know, the elite players from the merely very good ones is how, how much they understand it. And so from my perspective, it was always, you know, how can I improve my ability to like, understand the game without having like the knowledge of oh you gotta know you gotta bend your knees when you skate or you know here's how you support the play or something and then after I got more involved in everything I think I started picking up on that things more but at first it was mostly just like skills like I think those are the most easily identifiable thing like how does a player handle the puck and then you start looking at okay well they deke a person but how do their feet look inside of what they do how do they set it up uh, where is their top hand on their stick? Are they using their bottom hand? Are, so like, does that prevent them from adjusting when they get leaned on and so on and so forth? And so it just kind of led me down this endless pathway of asking questions. And um, something I've always thought was interesting is that the people who are, again, like the best at the sport and even a lot of top coaches, like they won't explain things in the level of detail that make it accessible for someone who has never played the game. Like in many ways, that has to be something that you go out and seek for yourself. And so when I write an article, I try to make sure that the audience will understand everything that I'm saying, no matter how advanced that it is, I strip it all the way down to basics. Like I have a little sheet that has all these lines that tell me, okay, you know, here's a very quick way of saying why a stride recovery matters. Like, just stuff like that so I can make it accessible for an audience, whether it's someone who has watched hockey their whole life or someone who, you know, just wants to learn about a player they trade for all the time in NHL 20. That's really interesting. I remember, so my first exposure to you was with your athletic writing and now obviously with EP. I, you know, that's interesting what you said about how you're trying to, maybe not dumb it down, but you're trying to make it accessible for all parties. Is that still true even on EP where you're obviously – you have a much more niche target audience, I would say, or is that still like part of your uh, experience? Yeah, I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to make it really accessible. But the great thing is, is that with EP, there's a little bit more freedom in what I can write and how I can write it. Like uh, the athletic is a great platform, but they're very driven on one specific thing. And my thing was 
doing player breakdowns and trying to spin everyone into a positive light. And EP Ringside allows me to be a little bit more critical and to be a little bit more development focused. So I wrote a piece this morning on, on Vasily Polkolzin, and I talk about all the great things that he does, but I also talk about how skating issues lead to puck handling issues, which leads to relying on plays that won't translate to the NHL. That is interesting. I'm curious to hear your opinion on how feet affect your hands and how your hands affect the feet and, and how you mirror those together. Should they be kept separate? What, what are your thoughts and thought processes around that? See, that, that's a really good question. I think you guys know the answer to it, but it's, it's kind of fascinating to, to look at it because when you, when you evaluate junior hockey players, you will find like a fourth liner, 13th forwards will go out and they'll break ankles occasionally. They're going to wreck some dude. Like that's just the way that it works. But if you want to beat players consistently, how you set up the deep is more important, arguably, than the actual move itself. You know, you want to come in on arcs because you want to get the defender moving one way or the other way. And then you can adapt your move depending on which way the defenseman crosses over or shifts their weight if they lean in and kill their backwards momentum and so on. And specifically in Paul Cozen's case, what he does is he keeps his top hand really locked to his hip. So he kind of handles the puck out in front of him. He never really has it across his hips. I think the term we hear most of the time now is hip pocket. Like he doesn't really have a hip pocket when he's carrying the puck. And he lifts the entire length of his blade off the ice. You look at like rolling out the back. So you're kind of pushing the puck out and then catching it around like, um, this isn't actually how it works, but like for a visual image, kind of like a circular motion. You're maximizing puck on blade time. And Polkosin is like lifting a stick, like as if he's trying to chop someone's head off every time he goes to touch the puck on the other side. And so there's just a lot of exposure there. And then because he doesn't have that control, because he's exposing the puck, he enters a glide. And then, as we talked about with the setup thing, he can't set up his moves properly. So he's not creating a speed advantage or any sort of deception advantage through, you know, faking outside, faking inside, whatever. And so it's much easier for defenders to read what exactly is he doing. Uh, we can get into like the more advanced stuff as well. Like because he locks his top hand, uh, he keeps his bottom hand in a really weird position. Like, so if he bends, you know, the angle that the stick is contacting that the ice changes, so he's more likely to bobble it. There's, you know, in, there's a dependence between the hands and feet. So some players, they take a stride and then they push the puck one way. Then they take another stride and they push it back. And then they take one stride and they push it the other way. And again, that's really easy for defenders to read and open ice and it doesn't set you up properly. Stick handling at the same rate as your feet. That, uh, that sounds like youth hockey to me. There's a lot of junior players and youth hockey players that do that, or even the glide. Um, I'm curious on where you heard of the term rolling out the back. I feel like that is something that's very, very at the margins of hockey um, and something that we need to put a visualization on uh, at our newsletter at some point. So I would imagine it was from a Daryl Belfry video post thing when he used to do those video blogs. I'd imagine it was somewhere along the lines of that, or maybe like some sort of coaching video years and years ago. Like when I started learning about this stuff, I was like, it was before I was in university. Uh, so where exactly I picked it up from was a really, like really hazy. It was probably Belfry though. I think Belfry was the thing. Like every year I just go back and watch all of his videos. I'm like, Oh, well this is a cool little thing that I've never noticed before. Even though I've watched that video 80 times. Very relatable for sure. What's something that you, you note when you're watching junior players that you think is 
like most consistently the limiting factor keeping them from the next level <laughs> how much time do you have <laughs> like 45 minutes <laughs> oh well i would say uh it's really tough to pin it down because there are like players in different provinces and different countries have different development patterns. Uh, like, Let's you, stop there. I've been fascinated by that as an American because it's you can legitimately tell what kids are from Quebec based on like maybe their skating or stick handling, even like their posture. Like yeah. go, go more into that because I think that that's something that like we don't talk about enough. So I don't have an answer for that, but uh, I was on another podcast and the guy was like, I think it's because we start hitting later. He was from Montreal and he was like, I think it's because we have less contact early in our game. And so players develop, let's call them uh, more unseemly habits that need to be crossed out of their game as they go higher up in the level. And I mean, and I think if you want to talk about major junior in specific, because, you know, like the, the handling at the same time as your feet thing, you know, like it's all connected you know, that's a major junior thing too. Like you see dudes put up a hundred points, handle the puck like that. Like it's super common in the queue. You have a lot of players who quite frankly would not play in the WHL or the OHL. They just wouldn't get the ice time. Uh, Andre Tourney, who's the head coach of the Ottawa 67s. When he was with Ottawa, he came out and he was like, our 13th forward is incredible. Like I can't believe the difference in the quality of depth. And ultimately that's just what it is. You're drawing on a larger player base and you're drawing on a player base that has been uh, educated about the sport differently. That's not a slight against Quebec hockey, which continues to produce a lot of great players, but there's just, you know, more talent accessible or available. Well, hold on. <laughs> we got off base there. Cause I, I cut them off initially talking about the provinces, but Mitchell, you were starting to talk about, um, maybe some of the the limiting factors that these prospects have. Sorry. I would say you see a lot of uh, like the puck handling thing, the crossovers can be really bad. Like this skating is, is a huge thing, right? Like to an untrained eye, you'll look at them and be like, Oh, they're going fast. And then you stop and you really take a quick peek. And it's like, this player is going to have to do like three years of flexibility work to be able to use this outside edge in his stride. Or this player is, he skates with like a 140 degree knee bend. Just you see stuff like that, uh, the crossovers. I would think one of the really big things like with, this is a bit more like niche, but for like what separates like the top junior guys from the, the top prospects essentially who go on to become NHL players is what they do offensively without the puck. So it's not just about like, supporting puck battles and knowing when to dip in and when to flare outwards, you know, to be ready offensively. It's about how to make timed movements into the slot with the pass or the rebound. It's knowing how to play in between checks around the net. It's knowing when to push off of a player, knowing when to tie them up. It's knowing how to translate, you know, physical contact into some sort of advantage uh, for whether that's setting up a shot or taking a shot, like having lean on someone and then pushing off and then using that to sink directly into your weight shift, or maybe you're using contact as a way to create a little bit of separation so you can free your stick. Like you see a lot of players become really, really reliant on taking sort of low percentage plays that they never develop any of these other things. There was an OHL goal scorer, Ty Feliber. He's a really interesting player because he was always pretty good. Uh, and instead of like actually improving, you know, the translatability of what he was doing, 
he sank more and more into what he did that allowed him to score in the OHL. And that's really different. Like he scored a ton by coming up to the top of the circle and firing because he could kill goalies with that shot. But when you get to the NHL, you can't rely on that. Like what is like a medium danger shot from the top of the circle is like a 0.4 expected goal in the NHL. Like it goes in very infrequently in junior it's 0.6 because you know, the shooting talent is so much lower on average that it offsets the difference in goaltending. But if you have a guy like Ty Felber or in this, in this draft, Tyson Forrester, they're able to take those shots from the top of the circle and they'll go in 15% of the time because they're just so much of a better shooter compared to what those goaltenders are used to seeing. They can rely on that. And then as a consequence, they develop poor habits as they go further up the ranks. Uh, Forrester is not that player. He's got great off puck offensive instincts, but Felber never really had to develop that touch, the offensive feel, so to speak, around the net, the timing skills and so on. Where is he now? Uh, probably in the AHL, I think. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's actually still a pretty good player. Like, there's no, it's no slight to him, but he was, a, he was a prime case of a guy as an overager who probably wasn't going to bring a ton of offense with him, and he'd have to lean into other aspects of his game to get there into the NHL. He'd have to start becoming stronger defensively. He'd have to work on his skating. He'd have to play on the inside a little bit more and so on. And, you know, you just get to a super long list with some of these guys, and at which point, you know, if you have lifestyle coaches as your development staff team, you ain't going to fix it. So don't bother signing them. Funny you say that, but uh, I'm, I'm assuming you've learned a lot through your CHL tracking project as well. And does it kind of hit at these transferable skills that you're talking at or where did this project come from and what are you t- attempting to accomplish with that? So, I mean, essentially it comes down to pattern identification, right? So when I'm watching a game, I'm looking for how do they create scoring chances? How do they exit and enter the zone? How do they do X, Y? And quite simply, our eyes hate us. They lie all the time. Uh, they hang on to like infrequent but very memorable plays at the expense of the consistently good ones. And so having that event data really helps sort of weed out the deceit that you get. Uh, the other part of it is that it just like keeps me really attentive through games and provides me with higher quality inferences through viewings. I mean, I suppose like some people don't really see it that way. Like you'll have someone be like, oh, a 12 game sample that doesn't align with what I saw in three viewings at the under 18s. Therefore, your data is wrong. It's like, all right, dude, like say that again, but slower, please. <laughs> but anyway, like it kind of comes from this. uh it's covering Montreal Canadiens prospects. Montreal fans were kind of turning on Mikhail Sergachev. You might have heard of him. I think he's uh, <laughs> I think he's a decent player right now. He turned out all right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I tracked a bunch of games to figure out, you know, what exactly was going on. And then I realized, oh, well, I need to know what his partners are doing and, like, his fellow defensive partners. Because, like, is a controlled exit percentage of 88%, like, yeah. good or bad or anything? And then that just kind of morphed into me tracking all the teams. Then I started doing more draft stuff and then I started tracking everyone. And then I'm like 700 games deep and like 2000 hours a year and tracking and just tired. I'm tired, man. All right. I got two follow-ups to that, but first what's like the end goal here with the tracking project? Like where do you, if, if, if you could have it your way, like where does this thing take you? It makes me thousands of dollars a month. It's like step two profit, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I think it's mostly just, you know, a way to spruce up articles and provide a little bit of unique content for people who are paying money to read uh, at EP Rinkside or previously The Athletic. Sure. Like that's kind of the end goal. Keep people happy, keep them engaged, keep them interested. Always yeah. try to find something new. It makes sense. And I mean, it's a, definitely a void that you're filling. I mean, 
I'm not breaking news here that, you know, the more data we have at the junior level, the, the more educated people will be. I want to stay on this junior topic though. And, and actually really a surrogate because I think that he's a really interesting case study when you're watching teams, let's just use his Windsor team as an example, because that team, that mem cup team was like one of the best, maybe one of the best teams in the last, whatever, five, six years and throughout the CHL, like when you're tracking games, I would imagine that when you're tracking a Windsor game, you're going to find, like you said, like an 88% exit or entry like rate. How do you splice out like, this player is really good, but he's on a really good team versus like this team, you know, he's a star on a bad team. Like there's a lot of variables at play here. Like what's your strategy for that? Yeah. Uh, that's kind of the the trickiest question here and you have to get into more nuanced stuff. So one of the things that I track is dot lane crossing entry. So how many times you know, the invisible line that runs from one face off dot to the other one kind of thing how many times do they skate over that when they're rushing the puck because that's directly linked to entry success rates and more carry-ins and then it's how many times do they drive the play from the outside to the inside whether that's by passing or handling and it's based on so instead of just tracking you know shot attempts and shot assists you're tracking it locational data and passing data to figure out the quality of chances they're creating because as i've mentioned before there are some players who can score consistently on shots that are worth absolutely nothing and so you can instantly weed out those players by basically relying more on expected goals and expected primary assists, which historically has been the strongest indicator that I have for players who go on to be the NHL. Like if you look at it, the leaders are like every year it's Alexi Lafreniere, Nick Suzuki, like those are the top guys by every single year. And so it's that, it's that kind of stuff. And also a huge part of it just comes down to identifying, and this is where the data helps, is identifying the way that they create offense. In junior, there are kind of like three goals, I guess, that are scored a lot that aren't really scored at the NHL level. There's the stand around in front of the net and no one touches you and then they just whack it in. Like you see that every game in junior hockey, there's no one tying them up. There's the, uh, there's the quick, like the, the long range kind of shooting thing from guys who won't be able to do it at the next level. And then there's the outside lane net drive which you see super common and everyone gets, everyone gets super hyped about it. But you know, this kid is not Pavel Beret. He's a below average NHL skater who took 18 strides from blue line to blue line and created a speed advantage on a defenseman who can't pivot to his right. So he had to pivot over to his left and turn his back to the play. Like you just don't score those in the NHL unless you're an incredible, incredible skater or like your athleticism, like a Josh Anderson, for example, is off the charts you look at those and if they're consistently doing those, which does kind of show up in the daddy, you know, you can look at, okay, the timestamp here is outside lane entry, then it's a high danger shot. Okay. And then you go back into the tape and you start figuring out, oh, well there's, he does this like 18 times. Jan Mishek was a good example of this. Mm -hmm. Like this is how he generates most of his offense in the O. And so while he's very inside driven and likes to play with, with contact and pressure and you can't really teach those things or at least not to the same level as teaching them to, you know, make a quick cut to the inside in a different position. He's going to have to completely change the way that he attacks to become an offensive player in the NHL. And that in itself is a concern. For sure. Let's, let's use your first example um, as kind of a case study here. I'm, I'm totally with you. I track where you're going and I, and I totally agree. I, I, you know, Belfry's talked on this a lot too, the transferability. So let's say you're an OHL coach of a player. Um, I'm going to use Tyler Biggs as the example. Tyler Biggs, he grew up in my same hometown. I've been following his, you know, like when he was at uh, Oshawa, I remember thinking to myself, like, this guy's still got a chance. 
but to your point, he scored a lot of stand in front of the net, bang away goals that, you know, obviously don't transfer to the NHL. If you're an OHL coach, you want those free goals, right? Like they help your team in the short run. They help your team win games, but you also have to understand that this is not necessarily best for my players, long-term development. Like how, how, how are those things reconciled if at all? So I'll, I'll get to an answer, but first I want to tell a little story. So last year I interviewed Daniel Renault, who was the head coach for the Shawinigan Cataracts. He's now the head coach for the Valdor Forest. He basically told me that when he got to, you know, coaching Maverick Bork, who I think he went 30th to Dallas or something, which was just a like larcenous pick. I can't believe he slipped that ball. It slipped that far. But when Bork entered the queue, he was a, he was a catcher only shooter. Obviously that's a dangerous thing. That's a, you can translate being a two touch off puck score to the NHL but he did score a lot of these kind of net front things. He didn't really have a lot of elements to his game outside of that. They could have won a ton of games last year just by having him sit in front of the net and do those things. Like that might've been their better course of action for victory. Instead, he's like, we're turning Mav into a playmaker. And so he started teaching him how to use contact to then open up lanes and find the teammates. Basically this concept of gravity. He wants, he wanted Maverick Bork to draw in the extra defender bump the other guy and then throw a pass to the open teammate. He wanted him to slow the play down and find the open outlet and teach him how to, how to, you know, play a delay game, I guess. And it worked, you know, some players won't pick those things up. You know, that's a particularly special case of a player going from, Oh, look, he's a below average playmaker in the queue to one of the best, but coaches can coaches like Renault find ways to make it work and make it work within their system. They don't always have to be mutually exclusive. Now to that point, you do have very questionable decisions you see throughout junior hockey all the time where teams are putting players in situations, you know, trying to teach them to do X and Y and that hurts their team. And then they put them immediately back into the other thing because they're not teaching them or coaching them the right way. It's all about, okay, you do X and then the player can't do X because it's not properly integrated into his neurological grooves and his habits and stuff like that. And then it immediately goes back to doing what he does before. And that's a very common thing we see in junior hockey. And I, there's too much reliance on wanting to win. Like at the end of the day, like 16 to 20 teams in the OHL make the playoffs. Like give, let the kids, let the kids improve their skill. They're all here because they want to make the NHL. Let's focus on that. You do need a winning environment to produce NHL talent. I'm not disputing that, but you also need players who can win to do that. And sometimes, Oh, you know, we have this dude in the net front. Maybe we could get him to do more things. You get a Maverick work. And then that makes your team way better. Uh, Unbelievable. I think that uh, we're having quite a great conversation. We're really getting at what makes a player good, great, and elite. Um, What are the players that, really get you jazzed and get you excited because it sounds like you've got a great depth of knowledge. So sometimes it can be a double-edged sword where you think, ah, this guy sucks. This guy's terrible here and there. And you start picking up, picking apart his game. I mean, what are the types of players or the types of plays uh, that you enjoy watching? Oh boy. That's a tough one. There are some players who I really like watching, but I have difficulty projecting their game, which I think kind of fits into the, fits into both halves of the question. Uh, Marat Kushnadinov is a good example of this. He's a, he plays in the NHL. He's fast, uh, likes to body players. He's a leader, uh, checks off all the marks that you want from like an intangibles value aspect. 
uh, and he's also a bit smarter than your average player. And so he uses those tools to take defenders wide and beat them to the net all the time. And he can find players from those positions as a crafty playmaker. And I really enjoy that. I really enjoy the, the physical element that he brings, the intensity, the pace. But there's also a caution with what he can do because he doesn't play on the middle. You know, he likes to play on the inside, but his inside game is based on beating the defender first before getting inside. And he doesn't have the creativity to consistently find the trailer to the play. And so when I look at a player like Murat, I really like what he does. I don't always think it translates. And more specifically, what I think he should do, which I think answers another part of this question, is get better off puck. More, you know, more supporting plays, not trying to be the driver of the offense all the time, getting building speed up underneath the puck first instead of catching it flat-footed, accelerating, and then going. Like if you're gonna be fast and take the outside lane on people, you have to create as many speed advantages for yourself as you can. And that's receiving passes in stride. That's getting, that's staying above the puck. That's making sure that you can work give and goes, find the open teammate, relocate, get back open, fire off a shot. And that's a huge attribute that he'll need to work on. There's also just, you know, you can teach a player in his situation, I believe anyway, to slow down. Sometimes when he drives that net and as a coach, you tell him you're going to make that net drive, but what if you tap the brakes and then cut into the middle? And that could completely change the way that he sees the game because suddenly he goes from trying to race everyone to a specific spot to then seeing the ice in front of him, seeing his teammates coming down the middle. And then you can unlock a lot more offense from his game. And that's a good habit to build before he goes, I guess, to the NHL. Is that, is that an adequate answer? I feel like I can go, I feel like I can start pointing to more specific things, but. <laughs> oh, I've got a good follow-up to that. So, I mean, I've watched a little bit of the MHL. I'm a Blue Jackets fan. Kirill Marchenko played there last year for a hair maybe it was two years ago the years are starting to bleed and you know i'm not breaking news like the mhl is a hard league to project just because it's russian junior hockey and <clears throat> the skill differential between the top and the bottom is pretty wide what leagues do you think are the easiest and the most difficult to project oh i like the easiest to project by far is like the ohl right yeah the ohl is the easiest one because you just like you can watch a player and you don't even have to have a good eye for these things. And you can figure out that what they're doing works so much better than everyone else going forward. There's just the depth of talent is so much stronger. There are very few players there who don't belong. Like it's just an easy league to figure out. Also part of that is just familiarity bias. Like that's where I spent most of my teenage years watching games in Mississauga, watching them in Guelph, watching them in Barrie. And so I, I understand how it works a little bit more. And then as for the projection thing, I think you're looking at like the second, third tier type uh, men's professional, like so it's like the Slovakian league, the Czech league, NLA. Uh, those are t really tough ones to figure out because you can't tell if their like lack of offense or lack of ability is because they're being coached this way, or if it's because of their tools, or if it's because of like their lack of skill, I don't know, interaction, their inability to sack skills on top of each other. That's the kind of thing that provides the answers but you don't really get any further in execution because then, you know, when you get a player who's really good at that level for their age, well, all right. Well, how do you translate that too? Because they're turning the corner on people who can't pivot properly and can't defend properly. And, you know, you're not going to have the same level of defensive acumen or anything like that you're facing right. against. And so again, you develop bad habits. I think a really good example of this actually is Tim Stutzla to go off on a tangent. Like I, 
I really liked Tim Stutzla. At EP, we had him infamously low. Uh, like, <laughs> I think we had him eighth or something, and just the internet was relentless about it, which, fair enough, we might be wrong. I will gladly take the L for wrong about it. The NHL could use a German superstar like Stutzla, who just, like, breaks ankles every single shift. But part of his game is based on habits that are acquired through playing against inferior skill as a youth player. Like he was never really tested. And you can see that because again, with the puck handling stuff, he's, yeah, he sets up his moves on a glide. He's handling the puck in front of him. You know, it's forcing him to rely on the accuracy of his hands and reducing his chances of grabbing the retrieval on the other side. He's just beating people to the outside constantly instead of trying to work plays into the middle. He can out, he can out handle and, anyone so he just has to hang on to the puck until another opportunity opens up like you see lots of these plays where you know he's you check your stopwatch and you're like wow this dude's had the puck for 18 seconds and has done nothing with it and then he hits a cross lot pass because no one can stop him because no one can keep up and you just he can't do that at the next level same with Jean-Luc Foudy like Jean-Luc Foudy can't skate around the ozone for 18 seconds doing nothing it just doesn't happen someone's going to come over there and dispossess him and it's going to be a turnover. And so you have to find ways to create offense earlier in possessions. You need to start scanning, and Stutzler's in, in JFL's case, you need to start scanning off puck before you receive that pass to find your quick outlet option. Like, you can't dust off the puck every time you go to make a pass first. You need to make sure you get it, and it's off the stick, and so on and so forth. Just lots of bad habits that you can see, and that's what made the Stutzler projection, I think, trickier for us than, say, a, a Cole Perfetti, who certainly is a slower skater, but you see more of the manipulation ability to pull defenders one way and then go the other. I, we thought it was easier to improve his skating as opposed to changing a lot of habits that appear to have been built up from the time he was a young and just wrecking other German kids all the time. Right. Uh, I'm glad you went on that tangent. That was, that was awesome. I, I'm fascinated by different leagues and I want to stay on this for one more question. I mean, if you think about it, like from an American football standpoint, every player that plays in the NFL, just about 99% at least, comes from NCAA. So there's like a, a very finite base. Everybody's watching the same games. Everyone can kind of like read the same tea leaves. Are there leagues in particular or maybe even teams that you think do a really good job at developing sense, hockey sense, hockey IQ? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think – a lot of it, like if you look at Swedish hockey, for example, yeah. you consistently are producing good, intelligent hockey players who don't have a ton of bad habits. You get the odd one, like William Ballinder, right? Like he's a dude who just gets up the ice or Philip Broberg. Like they get up the ice, just outskate everyone and try to dangle through people. And it's cool because they're huge, but it's also probably not going to work at the next level. They need to change it. But for the most part, you do get a lot of really intelligent players who think the game in a really exceptional way. Like, uh, Theodore Niederbach. He was a guy who we really liked at Elite Prospects. I had him in taught number 24, I think, and he's really taken off this year. And a big part of it was, you know, he just, he's so much smarter than a very high level of hockey intelligence around him. And that's a really good, that's a really good barometer for success. And you see similar things in Finland too, where you have a very intelligent group of hockey players. Like when you watch like the J20 Super Elite or the Finnish Junior League, I'm not saying that it's superior to major junior in any way, but I think in the absence of skill, you do see a little bit more of players who are trying to go out of their way to make controlled plays. They're trying to be creative. They're trying to work plays up the middle. You see just a lot more skilled hockey going on. Whereas a major junior, you have teams that are like, you know what? 
you're never allowed to make a controlled exit up the middle. Don't even bother. And that's not good for development, in my opinion. That's like the MHL too. That's a classic MHL move right there. So hard to get a read on MHL defensemen because every single one of them has had the off the glass and out ingrained into their brain from the time they're 12 years old. Very funny that you say glass and out. I was just having a discussion with uh, some coaches yesterday because they were stressing glass and out in preseason. And I was telling them like, you don't want to do that because it just doesn't project well. Like how are we supposed to develop players if that's, their MO is just glassing out. And I'm curious, maybe also has something to do not a lot just with coaching and the environment, but also the rink size. Does that have something to do in your, your thought? Yeah, I think it changes less than people think. Like when you talk to a lot of these players, they don't really seem to be bothered by it that much. Maybe they back into the boards a little bit too quickly on the power play. But I think generally the difference it makes is mostly for guys who are going to rely on, you know, offense that won't translate you know there's more space to drive wide on the defender uh stuff like that it's not it's not really it's not really a huge deal i don't think uh, as an aside it's like i have a weird ncaa thought watching the why is everyone trying to be the stanley cup winning pittsburgh penguins like every single team is oh you know what? we're just going to chip this off the glass and have a guy hunt the puck down in open ice and then kill them on the counterattack. it's like no one on your team can skate that fast. <laughs> Why are you doing this? Like Wisconsin did that last influence, year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, Wisconsin did that last year, right? You know, you have Cole Caulfield, Alex Turcott, and you have perhaps one of the best breakout passers in the country in Andre Miller. And just like a ton of guys who are really good in, in breakout. And their breakout strategy was just, you know, throw the puck up the ice and hope when a Cole or Alex can deal with it. And judging by their point totals and their performance this season, uh, it wasn't exactly the most efficient strategy, and they never adjusted. I, that one blows me away. I see that all the time in every conference of NCAA hockey, and I'm so baffled. So we've talked a lot about deficiencies and skill sets and things like that, and, and it's hard to figure out what's going to go first. And you know, development's not exactly linear. But what are maybe some things that you're, if you're an NHL team or you're a major junior team looking at a youth player, uh, what skills are you comfortable teaching these kids in a relatively quick time frame where you can take them to that next level and have them be a contributor? So I, I am not a coach by any stretch of the imagination. I have skated like 10 times in my life, but I'm here to rewrite the rule book for all, for all you listening out here. I think I, I think the big thing that you want to teach kids at a young age is keeping the puck across the hips and threatening triple threat stance, you know, coming on an arc cut across the defender. You can still have fun with your one-on-one -on -one skill, but now you have the superior base to start working, give and go to start working passes in, to start working some off puck offense in, to start working more deception. Another thing that I would like to see from more youth players is uh, eye deception. So you come in across the blue line, and instead of looking at the goalie that you're going to shoot, you look across the middle or vice versa, depending on what you want to do. Never look directly at what you want to accomplish. And then as you get higher up the ranks, also that helps for, you know, not getting smoked by someone. As you go further up the ranks, start looking into stuff like offensive manipulation. So now you have the triple threat stance. You have the lookoffs integrated. So now start figuring out ways that you can toy with defenders. Start figuring out ways, okay, if I pull this puck back, this defender is then going to pull a stick into a different lane. If I turn my body this way away from my passing target, 
the defender is going to take a step out here and then that lane is open. And so when you look at someone like a Cole Sillinger, for example, who was a, who was a fantastic rookie in WHL, part of what made him so good at 16 is despite, you know, he's not an incredible skater. He's not the most talented player on the ice at any point in time. That's for sure. But he's just so much more intelligent, even at 16, he's manipulating offense. And I think, or uh, defenders. And I think having that manipulative playmaking, having that manipulative element to your game builds a more pro ready offensive player. That's, That's funny. I'm going to plug, I'm going to plug our, uh, our own company here, hockey's arsenal. We actually have a presentation on manipulating defenders and manipulating the opposition, whether it be controlling feet by skating at them or pulling a puck on its own entry to try to drag a guy to you so you can open some space in the middle lane or even just, you know, where to look on your vision of as you pull in to the middle from an outside lane that defender pulls in and have someone skating on the overlap. I think those are all critical skills. Send me a link to that, please. I would love to watch that. Absolutely. Last one for me, and thanks for your time. I really appreciate it, and I know our listeners will too. I want to give you the floor to pump your tires once and then maybe bring you back down to earth once too. What's a player (laughs) – What's named like one, because, you know, like I said, my foray into your work was through the athletic and now with EP. What's a player who you were completely right about, you wrote about and were like, yep, I think this kid's going to be a stud and he has turned out. And then maybe the inverse, somebody who you were really high on who just, you know, for whatever reason, never panned. Uh, Well, I mean, you're wrong about every prospect, even if you get them right on face value. Like there's always something that you didn't know, that you didn't see, that you didn't understand that resulted indirectly or directly to their success in the NHL. Mm-hmm. And so when people are running around like, oh, well, you kids who weren't watching the games didn't realize that this dude who scored 145 points in 62 games of the CHL wasn't going to be good kind of thing. Like I ain't here for that. But I do think that particularly Nick Suzuki, that was a player who, you know, he's not a great skater. He did have some bad habits in transition and just, you could see other parts of his game that suggested a guy who would find ways to adapt. One of the best examples was uh, on the power play, PKers would skate at him. And so he would just offload the puck. And then he realized, oh, well, the penalty killer isn't going to close out on me this game. So I'm just going to go around him and shoot. And you see all these little micro adjustments he's making in shift in game. And that to me points to a player who is going to find ways once he gets to the NHL to make up for his lack of speed, to make up for some of the poor pace decisions that he makes. And so that was, a, I guess, a very small, obvious victory. I mean, it should have been obvious to everyone, I thought, but whatever. And who I got wrong, um, my goodness. Uh, there are so many, right? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, seriously. <laughs> seriously. That's, well, that's part of the thing, though. I mean, you're projecting. <laughs> that's the whole – that's the whole the, – the word – you know, tells the story you're projecting. It's difficult. I, I was wrong on Cam Atkinson. I'll, I'll give you that one. I was totally wrong on Cam Atkinson. I, I, I was wrong on Vitaly Abramov. So do, do you think there. he's good or bad? That's a, that's one that I'm confused about. Oh, I thought he was going to be like a stud and he's, oh. he's, he's fine. I mean, he's an AHL guy who still could play in the NHL, but I'm not, I'm not willing to put money on that. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of with you on the, on the Abramov one as well. There's just a lot of, uh, he does a lot of things really well, but the avoiding contacting, even though he can, you know, off push guys off the puck sometimes and the, the puck handling is built on poor form and the offense is intranslatable and so on. Like, I really like him and I hope he makes it like you yeah. always want to see a player make it. But as for who I've missed on, I would think a good learning lesson for me was, uh, was, uh, Jacob Della Rose. He's a Montreal Canadiens. He was a Montreal Canadiens prospect. He's an NHL or somewhere now. 
uh, my goodness. And uh, he was kind of an interesting one for me because I watched him in the SHL and I thought, okay, well, here's a dude who's playing hard, skating well, being big, and making the occasional skill player. Okay, he's going to play in the NHL and he's going to be really good. St. Louis. And then I, I completely missed that. Uh, I did too. I'll go. I got to be honest. <laughs> and I thought he could be a top nine guy. And then you get to a, I got to a point with him where eventually I started queuing in on these little things. And then I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, oh, these are minor details that he'll fix. And then when I look back on it now, I see a player who couldn't create offense individually. I see a player who, while he could do these fancy passing plays, he couldn't make any plays in motion. He couldn't create any advantages for himself or for his teammates. And while he's big, fast, and can do some things with the puck occasionally, if you can't create advantages and you can't get space and separation, you're not going to do anything. You need, you need to be able to make plays in motion, even if you're the fastest player in a straight line. Like, look at Andres Athanasiu. The dude can skate in a straight line and outrace anyone, but he's still not more than a, than a third-ish liner type. Carl Hagelin would be a great example as well. Yeah, yeah that's a great one. So I, I want to dig into more probably off the record, but uh, that, that's enough time for today. So we like to give two minutes at the end, plug anything you want. And then also uh, give us a book recommendation. What are you reading these days or what has been big for you in the past? So book recommendation is definitely range. Why generalists thrive in a specialized world. It has a little bit of everything for people who I think are listening. If you want to learn a little more about projection, there's a lot on projecting and making uh, probabilistic guesses and so on. There's a lot on coaching. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things for me is that people who have experience in wicked domains. So these are domains where there are unclear rules and patterns are hard to identify. And the feedback, so like what happens after you do something is very delayed or inaccurate. So in this case, prospects. You can make a projection and then three years down the line, not know if your prediction was right. That's an example of a wicked domain. Mm -hmm. The basic idea is that people who live, work in wicked domains, they have a leg up, not by experience over their competitors. In fact, experience is irrelevant. It's willing to adapt. It's willing to make adjustments even when the adjustment that you're making might not have an immediately clear impact. And I think that's a really valuable lesson for anyone who is coaching, for anyone who is projecting, for anyone who you do these things in pretty much every day job you could ever have, for anyone who who watches basketball, watches hockey, watches anything, it's super valuable. And as for myself, you can find me at Mitch L. Brown on Twitter.com, otherwise known as the greatest site on the internet that I will start tweeting out more stuff more frequently. I have promised that I will do that, and I am a man of my word. Uh, you can find my work on Elite Prospects and EP Rinkside. We have EP Premium, which allows you to search and find all these crazy players and so much more information, player pronunciations. Uh, you can have these crazy filters. You can look up what, like, what time of night it was when a player scored a hat trick on Valentine's day. You can do some crazy stuff with the data um, and you get access to all of our written content, which houses all of my articles, including my most recent uh, Vasily Colson article breaking down why he's arguably the best drafted defensive forward in the outside the NHL and a few tweaks he can make to finally start scoring in the NHL. That's all I got. Thank you so much for having me on Daniel. Thank you so much. For having me on, Greg, it's been a great time. Thank you for tuning into the Hockey IQ podcast. We are Hockey's Arsenal. 
Greg Rivak and Dan Ducart. Together, we've come together to create a platform and a community to expand our hockey intelligence, hockey IQ, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're very passionate about seeing this game played smarter and better and continue to develop itself uh, to the next level and staying on the cutting edge of things. So you can find us at Hockey's Arsenal on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We're also at hockeysarsenal.com. Uh, from there, you can find some resources and some options to work with us. We're excited to continue this. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, follow, and share. Uh, you can also join up for our newsletter as well, where we're going to tackle anything Hockey IQ related. So we're excited to have everyone here and continue to build. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch a Buttes here next week for a brand new episode.